Welcome to the IoT Review, presenting unbiased insights on the industrial internet of things from experts around the world. And here's your host, Sravani Bhattacharji, to discuss yet another fascinating aspect of the industrial IoT journey that may positively impact your business and your customers. Hi, and welcome to the IoT Review. In one of our previous episodes, we discussed how the existing global blockchain for Bitcoins can be leveraged for the industrial IoT. Now, blockchain has so much potential to disrupt how we think about security and data communication in the connected world that in today's episode, we decided to discuss more about blockchain and to touch upon some of its very interesting nuances when we try to apply blockchain for the industrial and uh, enterprise IoT. And to do that, we are honored to have Taylor Gehring, Director of Technology at the Ethereum Foundation. Taylor is a well-known expert in the world of Ethereum-based blockchain and also an evangelist and thought leader in driving many new developments in that space. Taylor, welcome and thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Ronnie. Um, honored to be here and talk a little bit about blockchain and IoT and how those might work together in the future. Thanks so much. Blockchain is you know, quite new and yet it's opening up so many exciting applications across so many industries. So tell us something about your journey into this world of blockchain and also the Ethereum Foundation. Sure. So my journey with uh, blockchains and more largely decentralized system goes back to about 2012. I was on a hiatus from work at the time, trying to figure out what next steps I wanted to take in my life. And uh, it's during this time period that I stumbled upon Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And from there, I started looking into it a little bit more and trying to understand, well, what is this Bitcoin? How is it possible we have decentralized money? And what is the implications of this? As I became more and more fascinated, I started to try and build projects around uh, Bitcoin. And I ran into some of the initial limitations that Bitcoin had. For anyone who's familiar with some of the differences of Bitcoin and some of the other blockchains out there, Bitcoin has a relatively limited set of commands that you can use, uh, which is great for money because it reduces some of the security risks. But if you want to build something on top of blockchain that's a little more robust, you need some other technology. And this is really the angle from which Ethereum was born. Uh, I think that when Vitalik Buterin wrote the white paper for Ethereum, there were a lot of people waiting to build new applications on top of blockchain and see how far we could push this technology. So once I read this white paper from Vitalik, I knew instantly this was like the next step in the blockchain evolution, and I just had to be a part of it and try and help build it. So really late in 2013, I joined up with some Ethereum guys and started coding and uh, working on different parts of the project to help them succeed. And since then, I've just kind of bounced around and worked in different areas of the space, helping code up the Go client, which is the main consumer-facing client for Ethereum. I've worked on their websites and servers, and now I do a lot of talks and presentations explaining some of the nuances of this really complicated technology and trying to bring it down to a consumable level for a variety of business sectors. Okay. And uh, how about uh, the Ethereum platform? 
itself and the Italian Foundation, what is its mission or what are uh, some of its uh, priorities? I think our audience uh, here, we are uh, familiar with uh, the Linux Foundation, for example, the how Linux uh, evolved. So uh, to draw some parallels, if, if you can give us some sound bites on the Ethereum Foundation itself and also the EVM. Yeah, so the Ethereum Foundation is quite small, uh, I would imagine, compared with the Linux Foundation. It's obviously a much newer organization as well. It was established in 2014 in Zug, Switzerland, uh, which is becoming a new kind of crypto valley. Uh, there's a few different crypto-related companies that are established there. And really, the Ethereum Foundation's mission is to promote and support research, development, and education uh, to bring decentralized protocols to the world more largely. The organization exists to help kind of facilitate some of the legal and regulatory needs that are uh, required when you get a bunch of people together and to try and start working on something. Uh, especially in this case, many of the people who work on the project are spread around the world across different time zones. Some have never, ever met. Uh, so the foundation sits kind of there to help facilitate the actual development and education uh, as we build on this protocol. Okay. And how can uh, the Ethereum platform be an opportunity for the Internet of Things? Well, there's a few different ways um, that blockchains more generally and Ethereum specifically can help. Uh, one of the powerful things of Ethereum is the Ethereum virtual machine, which we refer to as EVM. And the thing that's really powerful about this is we can use this kind of unified language to communicate with different devices. We already have, I think, eight different systems implementations, uh, and especially for embedded devices, they need a variety of system languages, C++ and Rust, maybe at the top of that stack. But at its core, it is a virtual machine like you would see in many other languages, Java or .NET CLR. The difference is that this virtual machine is connected up to a peer-to-peer -peer infrastructure. Uh, and this is really what forms kind of the blockchain ecosystem, the combination of the cryptography that backs all this, the peer-to-peer -peer networking that binds all the data together. And for Ethereum, it specifically is the Ethereum virtual machine, which is Turing complete. So you can program pretty much whatever you want, including loops. This is contrasted to Bitcoin, which you can't do looping operations. Uh, the risk there is that maybe you have a bug in your code and the loop runs forever. So what Ethereum network does to mit mitigate this problem is to say, okay, well, this is one shared public resource. Everybody has to pay for the usage of the network. So when you go to run your program, you give it a few tokens that count towards uh, resource usage. And if your code doesn't complete or runs forever, uh, basically what happens is your resource tokens will get used up and that will cause the program to halt. And that's a safety measure to ensure the network doesn't get tied up by some bad code and it's available for everybody to share. Uh, yeah, that's a great concept. And how can we connect it? How can we apply it? How will it will be useful um, when you think about uh, a highly scaled connected work, for example, uh, the Internet of Things? Well, so I think there's a few different areas in which we can try and uh, gain better efficiencies uh, with respect to IoT. One of those is looking at the resilience of the network, right? So in a traditional solution, you might have a cloud provider that's responsible for hosting some sort of API where all the devices talk to it. Um, mm -hmm. But this does introduce a security problem because you have a single point of failure, right? If that is attacked in any way, 
by a malicious actor, or even if something happens where just some routes to the internet go down temporarily because of a misconfiguration, that can knock all of your devices offline. One of the benefits of uh, blockchain and the peer-to-peer -peer network that you know, brings us together is that if you lose a node, or even if you lose half the nodes, it doesn't meaningfully change the ability to access the data. Uh, so I think that the peer-to-peer -peer resilience is a really big part of that. And also, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the data costs associated with that. You know, when you're serving data to 20 billion devices, that's going to add up quite a lot. However, if you can have the devices communicate with each other and share the information uh, between each other as needed, you reduce a lot of that central uh, bandwidth burden. And I think we're going to have to continue taking harder looks at this, especially as the data requirements grow for having sensors everywhere. So, you know, lastly, I just kind of want to mention is the web and the internet as we know it is quite old in terms of technology. You know, much of the technology is 40 years old and was not really designed for a modern internet uh, environment that we have today. Uh, so things like, you know, information being sent in plain text is very, very common. And what we've done over the past decades is wrap an extra protocol around it like SSL, for example. Uh, but really, this is just kind of a Band-Aid on a larger problem. And mm -hmm. blockchains might give us the possibility to actually move over to a newer, more secure system that's private by default, that uses cryptography uh, from top to bottom. And this is really the kind of internet that we need you know, to build for the future. Yeah, so I think we have to drive deployments once we have, although, as you say, that uh, the Internet is built on technology that evolved over 40 years, it also adds a maturity uh, dimension to it, you know, a proven um, dimension. And that's when, when businesses invest on technology, how they make the decision. So let's take up a use case. Uh, let's say an enterprise who is uh, considering to deploy, say, a smart fleet management system, just for example. And if at, at a global scale. Now, why would they consider a blockchain-based IoT solution instead of um, public and private cloud-based architecture? Cloud, you know, that also evolved over the last decade and that also there was many resistances. So from a business perspective, when we adopt technology, we often think about the maturity and the reliability and the, how much proven it has been overall. When we do that um, evaluation, then why would somebody consider blockchain-based uh, IoT solution? If you can just uh, walk us through uh, some of the you know, decision-making process, that would be great. Sure. Uh, so as you mentioned, uh, maturity and reliability are certainly uh, important properties of some system that anyone might evaluate to use for IoT. And definitely blockchain has some time uh, to continue incubating before it, to that level of maturity um, that I think people will feel more comfortable using. In a larger sense, the main benefit of using blockchain versus, let's say, a traditional uh, centralized database is that blockchain enables a level of coordination that was previously a little more difficult to achieve, right? So um, if we have a bunch of sensors embedded in vehicles in the fleet or so forth, they probably all communicate all that data up to a centralized database. Uh, that database has to be processed, the data has to be churned, and it has to be calculated, and if there are any partners to work with it that they need to have that information shared with, that data then has to make it over to their system. Uh, and I've been in an enterprise environment in the past, and I've wrote, written plenty of enterprise data bridges, as I call them, 
where it's just shuffling right. data from one database to another. Uh, that's complicated. It's error prone. It adds cost. There introduces bugs. And really, if we can move away from having to create a single bridge for every pair of you know, organizations that work together, if we could move towards a distributed database like blockchain, where you share it with partners that you want to coordinate certain aspects of the system, you reduce a lot of that kind of overhead that's introduced by having a centralized database and needing to share portions of that. Yes, you know, data governance is also a big elephant in the room when it comes to cloud-based uh, uh, IoT infrastructure. So yeah, I, I'm already feeling very excited to see that you know blockchain is evolving as uh, a parallel to the internet, where where um, where it is. Um, it is kind of the next generation, but we have to propel ahead and overcome certain challenges and see uh, and also drive awareness and a lot of uh, work needs to go in. But it's, it's uh, I think we are moving in the right direction, so that's exciting. Some other um, aspects of blockchain that are kind of interesting, especially when it comes to the ownership of data, right? If you mm -hmm. produce, if the manufacturer produces a sensor IoT device and then you as a user deploy it in a location, but that data has to be fed up into a centralized repository, the question of who owns that data becomes more and more important. Um, and the interesting thing I think about blockchains is that blockchains allow us to maintain ownership of our data, right? So in the case of the sensor, the sensor produces that data, it owns that data. It can then also hand out access to that data to different organizations. And in an ideal scenario, hand out differing levels of access. Um, what's really cool about all this is blockchains have enabled a sort of uniqueness, a digital uniqueness that we haven't previously had. You know, computers are really good at copying things, but when we represent something on the blockchain, we can have a unique version of that because the uniqueness is enforced by the shared ledger. We can all see that it is indeed unique. It's not hidden behind a database system that we don't control. Because it's shared, we can all agree that these things have occurred in this way. And if we want to represent a bit of data or a digital asset uniquely, we can all do that with a blockchain. Right. And uh, you know, uh, the immutability also the, from an audit perspe perspective and all that. So that's... Yeah. Yeah. Those are also great points. Now, the Ethereum platform um, is closely tied to the concept of smart contracts. I mean, smart contracts and Ethereum, they're so closely tied. Now, can you give us a quick intro to smart con contracts? Because our audience would sure be interested to learn how this concept can automate M2M um, transactions and also digital assets. Sure. So, actually, it's kind of funny. Smart contracts is um, this, this term that we're stuck with. But as we use the idea more and more and played with it more, we realized they're not necessarily contracts or necessarily all that smart. Uh, what we do know about them is that really it's just a bit of program code like you would run on your computer. But instead of running it locally, the blockchain executes it. It exists out on the blockchain and it runs itself. And this kind of self-executing and self-enforcing behavior of the code is really what kind of gives it the smart contract capability. So just as an example, you can have, let's say, an escrow type contract where if I'm the buyer and you're the seller, I can send some money to the contract. It can hold on to that money until proof has been given that the package has been delivered, for example. Once that proof is available, it can then release that money to the seller. 
this all happens without necessarily needing a third party or intermediary to hold this. The blockchain holds on to it. The blockchain enforces it. This is really where a lot of the smart contract value comes in. Now, we might not see this kind of instance a lot between humans, but increasingly as we start to take a look at this idea of the internet of value, right? We have a token that is native to the internet and it can represent value. We're going to start to see more and more effort focused on this idea of machine-to-machine -machine transactions and individual devices exchanging value with each other, not just data. Yes, discuss the use case of um, M2M, uh, like machine-to-machine -machine, uh, transaction. Like, what would be a typical, uh, in a, let's say, industrial or an enterprise deployment? What, when would I mean? How would a M2M uh, transaction using smart contracts be very viable and useful? Uh, well, it's a bit hard to say within the confines of an enterprise or corporation because the very nature of those organizations has to do with reducing the internal transaction cost, right? The, mm -hmm. the fact that you're doing business with somebody basically is part of the same company uh, makes it valuable to do it there. But one use case I talk about, um, just this very easy illustration, and it's close to home for me, uh, because I do a lot of traveling, I have to deal with the issue of data access abroad, right? I have a phone, I might need a new SIM card when I travel somewhere. But that seems like very silly to me because my phone also has Wi-Fi and Bluetooth protocols built in. And if I'm in a different country, there are hundreds of people surrounding me that also have Wi-Fi and Bluetooth on their phones. Why can't my phone send out a broadcast to phones in the nearby vicinity and say, I am willing to pay somebody uh, you know, a couple of cents per kilobyte of data to allow me to send and receive up to 100 kilobytes of data. And those phones in the vicinity of me could see that offer, agree to it, and provide that service, right? So this is in a way where we can exchange value, and in this case, we're doing it for bandwidth. Um, and that's you know, much different than having to go to a mobile phone provider and buy a SIM card, and then you have to deal with all of that process. It would be much simpler if my device could just simply ask for what it needs to those that it's connected around and exchange real money for whatever that good or service might be. Uh, in many cases, it will be digital forms of something. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, as we were, as you were speaking, I, another use case that came to my mind was how um, you know we are talking so much about drones, the applicability of drones, and when uh, drones are being uh, used increasingly in many many applications. One promising uh, avenue which I'm hearing more these days is delivery. So when it delivers an item, let's say, which just the transactions which are involved to accept, sign, and just uh, release um, and acknowledge the delivery. So those type of transactions can happen between a machine to machine without any uh, human uh, intervention. So that's Absolutely. also something I can see. Yeah. Yeah. And if they were coordinated on a blockchain, you would want to have some sort of event occur every time something important happens, right? So if the drone arrives at the property, you might want to put something in there that it's near the property. If it then actually drops the goods off, or maybe it could not find a good place to drop the goods off, it would register that entry in the blockchain. And you know, whoever deployed the drone and also perhaps the customer who's expecting to receive it will both have information, access to that information, right? Uh, so that's a good example of where the coordination of blockchains could come in. Yes, wonderful. Now, these are all great concepts, uh, Taylor, but in context of the massive scale of industrial IoT ecosystem, um, you know, um, Internet of Things is all about 
working at scale. Are we there yet? Some questions that come to my mind is, can blockchain really uh, scale to a full mesh of you know, thousands and millions of devices? Is it fast enough? I know you are already aware of those. Uh, uh, now, let's talk about some of the areas where blockchain kind of falls short and how to overcome uh, some of those challenges. Sure. So from my view, there are two major areas where blockchain doesn't quite meet the needs of all the different use cases. One of those is privacy. Uh, right now, everything on a blockchain is effectively public and transparent. And for a lot of reasons, businesses uh, may not want to share everything. For example, if you're in a supply chain, you don't want to share all of your other partners in the supply chain because that's valuable information to the way that you do business. Now, fortunately, we're starting to make some headway into more private solutions. There are other blockchains that are experimenting with uh, privacy features. One of the most popular ones that's uh, recently launched is Zcash. And they're using a technology called Zero Knowledge Proofs to provide some of that uh, privacy on a blockchain. Uh, what happens with these zero-knowledge proofs is that it obscures uh, a lot of the data. You can see that a transaction was sent, but not necessarily who was involved or the amount or some of the other metadata associated with this. So this is a step in the right direction. Uh, there are efforts uh, at bringing that technology, zero-knowledge proofs, to Ethereum in the form of an extra opcode for the EVM. Uh, there are also additional work being done in other areas of uh, cryptography research, for example, homomorphic encryption. Uh, but that research is a little ways off. Uh, if it bears out, it could be kind of the whole, holy golden grail of privacy that we want, but we'll have to see uh, what happens there. In the meantime, we kind of recommend that people who lead privacy in a sense play with a private uh, blockchain solution, and then they can take a, like a hash of the information, uh, just kind of an identifier that points to the information and claim its existence in the public blockchain. Um, I think within a year, we'll start to see more improved privacy solutions. So as organizations are experimenting with different use cases, the process of having some information private and some information public will be much, much easier. The other area in which blockchains don't quite meet the needs of everybody right now is scalability. I like to break this down into three different areas. We have the scalability of data, right? So we're producing gigabytes of data per day. How do we manage all of this data? There are you know, some limitations in blockchain currently that kind of have forced us into a situation where we have a lot of data and we don't know how to spread that out. Uh, there's a lot of good research going into uh, proof of stake and, and Casper, uh, which are some of the projects that are to scale Ethereum. And the idea is that we can actually split up the data. So the network processes um, maybe like 20 different shards is what they're calling it. So the network can spread that out and then eventually it can roll that data up to a consistent state. Uh, it's a bit difficult uh, right now, but the research is doing pretty well. Uh, another area is transaction speed. So blockchains in the past, Bitcoin was at 10 minutes between uh, blocks or kind of reconciliation. Ethereum has that speed down to about 15 seconds, which is a huge improvement. But really, for large-scale operations, we're talking about under five seconds, I think, is a more ideal scenario. Hopefully, we'll get down to about two or three, uh, but it's possible we could get even lower. Uh, and finally, and this is really the big one, 
is how do we scale up the number of transactions per second that the network can handle? Right now, you can only fit in so many transactions before the network kind of gets bogged down. And ideally, we want to scale this from the range of dozens or hundreds up to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions if this is going to truly be a backbone of internet commerce to come. So these are the kind of the different areas, privacy and scalability. And within scalability, there's some different aspects. Uh, all of those are being addressed, and I expect to see some of those solutions coming in 2017 uh, with the majority of things rolled out by 2018. Oh, wow. Amazing. <laughs> That's good. So we'll stay tuned. And um, uh, so we are almost close to the end of our episode. So do you have any comments in the closing? Uh, the one thing I would really emphasize is that we have to start taking a look at machine-to-machine transactions. We are faced uh, with an age here where we have to acknowledge the Internet is part of our reality. It's just as real as the computer sitting in front of you or the chair you're sitting on. So in that sense, if we're expecting billions of devices, this Internet thing will persist forever, and now we have this idea of value on the Internet that's completely native to the Internet and only exists there. You have to start paying attention to data uniqueness, machine-to-machine transactions, and how all these things will interact. Uh, if the estimates are right that we're going to have 20 billion devices by 2020, uh, that's a lot of stuff to track, and I don't know that our existing uh, solutions today will necessarily get us to that point and beyond. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. We have to think in those lines. And, um, you know, blockchain has such a wonderful value proposition. And, and I, I feel excited to just think uh, how it's compelling us to think in a dif- different new direction that we haven't in the conventional, traditional Internet. And, you know, it's not, no longer the human-to-human interactions. It's um, more of a machine-to-machine. And so the paradigms are so very different to be resilient, to be secure, and also to be robust. We have to think differently, and uh, it's really exciting to see how blockchain is um, addressing it. We'll stay tuned, as I said, and I hope you'll come back and share some more developments. I mean, towards the end, we we kind of touched upon some of the shortfalls, so we'll come back and we'll keep the dialogue going. And thanks so much, Taylor. Thanks so much for coming and sharing your insights and also for your time, and we look forward to have you back. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I always appreciate an opportunity to explain uh, how awesome blockchains are. Uh, So it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Tavani. You've listened to the IoT Review, an exclusive platform to discuss, learn, and harness the power of the industrial Internet of Things. To receive more insightful episodes, subscribe by visiting iot.ireca.media.com. We thank you for your support in empowering industries around the globe with the power of IoT.